Hi, welcome to Chicana Code Switchers. Your co-hosts are Ariana and Patricia. We are both Chicanas in our master's program. We are also scholar practitioners in student affairs. This podcast is intended to provide insights into higher education with a focus on social justice and pláticas of student experiences. With that being said, let's start the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to a new season of Chicana Code Switchers. Ariana, my name is Patricia. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. So happy to be back. Yes. And today, um, it's just going to be Ariana and I uh, talking about um, the updates of our summer. So, Ariana, what have you been up to since it's been like almost a month ago since we last <laughs> recorded? Okay, so I'm officially a Harvard graduate. Yay. <laughs> Yay. I think that's where we left off, where we were like preparing for that. Um, uh, what happened? Um, I moved to a new place uh, here in Massachusetts. So it's basically a few minutes from my old place. Um, my family came to my graduation. We did the whole, all of the ceremonies. Uh, we even did a little trip up to New York. And then I came back and have just been working, not just, we, I have been working in the Office of Student Affairs, um, just uh, continuing my work, um, preparing for the next cohort of students. I've also been trying to survive this heat. <laughs> it's been a little bit hot and humid. And yeah, just uh, finding that new routine now that I've graduated and like trying to figure out like my next steps um, for the fall. So how was the graduation? Did you, I like saw a bunch of ceremonies, like did you participate in what kind of ceremonies and like your, like what was the experience of like taking your family, like flying all the way over there to the East Coast? Yeah, so that was, um, I think bringing my family was exciting and nerve wracking just because they they don't really travel so I had to do a lot of uh, guidance and, um, you know, like even small thing, getting, even getting our tickets and um, like that. But it was really uh, interesting to have them here and have them see where I'm going to be for the next year. Um, have them see like it was like a hot, a hot and humid Monday, one of those rare first um, hot days in May. Um and so it was like just a lot. I think it's a lot just hit them at once. Uh, the time change, uh, the weather, and like like the area, and like confirming there's no Mexican food nearby or Mexican like in- <laughs> ingredients at the local store. But um, so that was interesting. Um, and just participating in the ceremony was, was like I I didn't know what to expect. It was technically four um and each day there was one and we started off with a latinx graduation that had i believe about 300 students participate from all over uh harvard like all the different schools um so that was cool it rained that night uh (laughs) so it was like weather you're so crazy (laughs) um yeah that was really cool it was i think that was one of my favorite ceremonies out of all of them was that one just because the parents got to participate uh, in walking with me and and like stoling me Um, and it was bilingual so they could understand it 
And then thereafter, I think it got, I think after that first ceremony, I was like done. Like, I'm like, okay, I can, you can mail me my diploma. I'm good. I honestly was just tired from that day. Um, but thereafter, there was like my program's graduation. There was my um, first generation graduation that, that, that they were having for the first time. And then there was a, oh, the main graduation where they do like the whole like, um, everyone, all of the schools are in the yard at once. And we're, we had to be there by 730. And you know me, I'm not an early bird. So that was a struggle. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was pretty cool to just be a part of that. Like, part of me didn't want to participate in the rest of them. But I'm like, this is a once in a lifetime. I'm never doing this again. So and I don't want people to tell me, oh, you this happened, that happened. I wanted to experience it for myself. Um, and that was really cool. It was really long days and we were exhausted. Um, how do I describe it? We all had little things. So I like the school of education had books, the business school had flags, you know, like that they waved. Um, the dental school had like a giant toothbrush that they like played around, like showed around. And we were, there's this like competition of who's the loudest at graduation. And apparently we've been winning every time the school of graduate, the graduate school of education has been like the loudest every year. And so we didn't disappoint uh, Dean Terry long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's pretty awesome. What about you, Patricia? How's your summer going? What What's new? So in the last few weeks, um, I was like driving back and forth from like Napa to Fresno with just like a bunch of like different, um, like just things that I had like going on with like my own personal life and like just finishing the last semester. So I did finish my first year of um, my master's program and towards the end of May, um, I had my cohort retreat. So we just talked about like the expectations of next year uh what like the last year was going to look like if people are going to do a project or a thesis or um usually my program doesn't end up doing a comps test just in general so um, but it was just an option there uh so it, it was just getting a sense of like the expectations of our last year just for us to like mentally prepare and since i'm thinking about doing a thesis like and during the summer we're supposed to write two chapters so like the method section and the lit review so it was just like already like you're done but hey here you go another whole like from here like it was just interesting because within a year we're going to be already done like exactly in that may time we were just going to be done next year in 2020 so it was kind of interesting just to see like how like time either like feels like it's going really fast and then sometimes it feels like it's been years and so from that um I had like a weekish of just like a break and then I drove all the way down to uh, LA for the um, critical race and education um, association. I forget what the whole acronym is, but it's CRSEA C -R -S -E -A. and it's for critical race scholars uh, in education uh, to talk. It was just like a whole like conference three days at USC And it was really cool. Like, it was, like, one of the best conferences I've ever been in. And it was, like, amazing because the first day, it was a pre-conference. And it was for, like, early young professionals and graduate students. And so all the workshops were centered around 
how do you create a CV, um, how to do the job market, how to critically publish, leadership, administration, um, how to survive, like, like just the politics of, a, you know, if you want to become like a researcher, a scholar, um, all these things. Um, but the interesting part is like it wasn't student affairs. It was like just the academic side, the academia research going into the PhD process. So um, that was that. And it just reminded me so much about like how much I missed that, like going like being so involved in student affairs and just like seeing all my dreams die like because just the culture in general and student affairs is pretty hard if you're a critical race scholar um, and don't have that much support in terms of how you do research or like just being a scholar practitioner is hard because you're navigating two different worlds that are like always up against each other because professors and like the academic side is like always fighting with the student affairs which is pretty normal um but just like trying to be both is difficult Mm -hmm. and so um i'm at this space where i'm like trying to determine if i want to switch it around my whole work experience to move away from student affairs and go and become a professor um that way i can go into administration Mm. so it's like how to reframe that and how to work it around and put that work experience in and to make that decision within the next year just to like have it down for myself and just in general like what I really loved about this conference was that every like professor like well-known scholar who has been like a founder or like created their own theory within critical race theories mm-hmm. has been like super accessible and they had their own separate like their own like session that they had uh-huh. where you can ask them specifically about that theory like you could go like they talk about the theory and you can ask like here's how you can get feedback like it's like honestly like a brainstorm session for you to get the person who wrote it to give you some ideas and feedback on your own like whatever you need to ask yeah and just in general the like the environment that I was in and the first like I felt like I was their colleague like I was taken seriously I was seen as like someone who can you know really be someone in the field Mm -hmm. and they genuinely want you to like they want to like hey let's bring you in let's get you some resources let's connect you with some people because we know what it's like Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but they like and then we talk about there was a whole panel on crit walking Mm -hmm. and talking about you know like the not just walking the walk, but talking the talk and doing vice versa and all that. And so it was just so cool to just be with some like really genuine people mm. who are going to give it to you straight and tell you, yes, it's tough, but that's why we have each other. Right. And I'm like, and there, there were some people that came from like activists, like they're scholar activists mm. that is like amazing because I'm like, yes, this is what I'm talking about. You know, agitate, you know, like <laughs> don't get comfortable, don't conform, don't be complacent mm-hmm. um, because th- throughout this past year, I just felt like people are just being very comfortable mm. and very complacent with how things are in academia. And I'm like, we can push a lot more to the needle of like what we need for our, not just for ourselves as professionals, but also like for the students that we work with, mm-hmm. like, where is that voice? Mm-hmm. We are not giving them that platform. We're not giving them the tools to like break down 
all these barriers, all these institutional like um, systems of repression, things like that. And I was just like, it was so nice having like being around so many awesome, badass people that are like, they're willing to just do things differently and be like, well, if you're not down, you're not down, you know, like that's the thing but it doesn't it's not going to stop us from like advocating for our students um it's it's not stopping us from changing the department like we're just not going to take the bare minimum Mm -hmm. and that was amazing to be with because I'm like okay like basically all my feelings were validated and I was like I feel so welcome so supported so seen and taken seriously like it's so hard as a grad student to be taken seriously when everyone is just kind of dismissive and like oh just wait in line Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay for these behaviors, um, this invalidation, this support. Because I've just had, like, the experience where people are, like, just telling me, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what you're doing is great, but, like, there's no genuine feedback on how to be better. Like, I know this mark is here, but I'm, like, I want it. I want to be the best scholar. And so they were just, like, handing out each other's, like, phone numbers. And I was, like, this is so cool. Like, I've never had so many professors that were, like, really well-known be like super open to connect Mm -hmm. with you and I learned so much like that was like a part where a lot of the um, presentations that I went to and workshops and uh, roundtables like they understood how my brain worked because I wanted to use like these two theories with like this one method and I didn't know how to apply it because they don't go that far in your research methods class plus it's critical race theory with other things Um, and so it was just really cool to have other scholars and graduate students do that and I'm like yes okay so I'm not crazy like I I knew that this was totally possible I just didn't know how where to go from there so it really gave me a lot of great ideas and insight of what I want to include in my thesis and authors that I can read up so and on top of that after I went to USC I went and drove all the way back to Napa and um, moved to Berkeley so started my internship here in Berkeley at UC Berkeley and um, it's a program called smash so it helps how I mentioned last um, episode um, helps uh, young Bay Area students of color um, get into STEM fields and they take like computer science uh, they get to do animation uh, they get to do college success classes biology all these like food justice class financial literacy like all these like really cool things and I'm part of the residential team so um that's what I've been doing wow and when is that program over that that you're doing right now it's over in like two weeks so it's a five-week program um and then the residential team gets an extra week just for training so um we've been working for like six weeks so this is our fourth week Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. going in wow 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 um I guess one question that, that I had and maybe our listeners also had is how did you learn about that conference that you went to? So the conference was, um, Mariana actually uh, mentioned it to me before, mm-hmm. uh, but I wasn't able to go because it was somewhere, I forget where it was going to be held, but this time it was going to be in LA. Mm-hmm. So um, one of my other friends, um, actually it was Maida who was in the podcast uh, mentioned that she was also going to go. Um, 
And so it was pretty cool. So I was like, what do you know about the conference? Like, what do you know? So did I sign up or not? Like, I just don't want to go to a conference, pay this much money, mm-hmm. and then end up not getting anything yeah. in return. And she said, well, it was like uh, my first time going. So, um, but she knew a couple of people that were going to be there. And I was like, okay, I saw the itinerary and I was like, I got to go. There's so many cool people. And I met like, like I met Dr. Daniel Solorzano like in person and all these other cool people um, that I can't think of on top of my head but I took a picture with him and I was like oh my gosh I feel so cool like it was like the critical race like Grammys you know like all the (laughs) big important people were there Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, from there like that's another reason why I wanted Mm -hmm. to go was because of the pre-conference the graduate Mm -hmm. one they have a really good um workshops and everything like the the plenaries were just amazing like Dr. Sean Harper was there um it was um Dr. um I forget I'm forgetting now but uh that's not like a reason why I went and also it wasn't too expensive um it was like $35 and $45 for um, the membership and the registration so that's another reason why I went and it was a little closer um, it was easier to drive from Fresno to there so another reason why I was like okay this is meant to be because as you all know conferences aren't cheap the membership isn't either or the registration for the conference and so that's another reason why like I also felt like in the student affairs part why I didn't feel so like included as a grad student because I'm like it was so inaccessible Mm -hmm. like I'm like do y'all even want us there like especially when it comes to like low-income grad students that are paying a lot of like especially master in your master's like you're paying a lot out of pocket and then to get professional like development or anything like that like you have to pay a whole like 5k just to attend Mm -hmm. and that's not even knowing if you're gonna get anything out of it you know yeah for me I mean, conferences are usually, at least the ones that I've gone to, are usually very tiresome, like, um, mostly just Mm -hmm. very overwhelming, or like, they have really good titles, but the content does not meet those standards that you have. So I'm really happy to hear that you had such a great time at the conference, that you met so many great people, I think it helped you with your thesis and thinking and writing and incorporation of like different theories um and also that's that's always uh something good to attend as a professional development experience I think for for just anyone who can have who has that opportunity like um you never know what connections you can make there yeah yeah very cool yeah and they set it up so you actually like can network with people and can meet with others. Um, it's a pretty like small conference, so it's not too overwhelming. Um, so I'm like definitely thinking about like applying um, to present there mm. next year with like hopefully like my master's thesis or things like that. So like I'm going to put it out in the universe and hopefully I can like either if it's not next year, definitely like the year yeah. after that. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Definitely, you're always thinking ahead. <laughs> always <laughs> thinking of ways. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for sharing that, Patricia. And I know we can. Uh, we'll definitely be talking more about that as 
as um, um, as we continue these conversations throughout this new season. Uh, but something that we thought was important to discuss for this first episode of season uh, two uh, was the topic of who is considered local and who is um, who gets help. So, for example, I think in a previous conversation you and I were having, you mentioned something about now that you're in the Central Valley, um, should people who are in the Central Valley only help those from the Central Valley? Um, and also are yeah. those, I mean, you can explain it further, but I think that was a, such a great point that you were making because I hadn't thought about it like that. But now that we've both moved away from our communities and like now enter new ones, like what does that mean? How are we perceived? How are we seen? And how are we welcomed or not? Yeah. And this like topic came up because I follow on Instagram, how not to travel like a basic bitch. Uh Um, And like they brought up the conversation about uh, who is considered local and who like, who would you identify as local and how long does someone have Mm. to live there to be local? Um, Would you consider immigrants local um, like who ends up deciding that and who ends up like, what are the, the things that determine um, like, especially like the knowledge and who ends up like making those decisions, especially for um, marginalized, underrepresented, minoritized individuals. Uh, and also like the layer of the fact that like, once I moved from the Bay area, the North North Bay, area to the central valley i kept hearing this like conversation about only the people from the central valley should help central valley people and move forward the education the inequities there which is for me i'm like okay well like but what about like people who end up moving especially in academia how many of us end up moving or leaving um as immigrants both of us Mm -hmm. are immigrants um and just my experience now like moving and living out of napa in that white space and going to another white school like as an undergrad and then now like from coming from the central valley to now the area like in the east bay and like my experience like now living like near oakland and and berkeley like it's really made me think about like where am i local to like who like ends up deciding like what will happen like if we were to stay with that mentality of like only local people should be helping local like mm-hmm. communities uh knowing that like in my future as a, like if you want to work in higher ed and we we had to do this this discussion about um now that we both have moved because there's like j- in terms of job placements and also like our grad school program we're far away like there's no four-year university in the town that we're Uh in so um, we've had to move um, and just thinking like who because of like now I moved to different places like I also lived in San Diego for a while Um, I'm like how how are we able to keep that or should we um because of like also displacement of not just like countries or like spaces but like gentrification I definitely would not be able to afford Napa's Mm -hmm. rent or buying a home for sure and so like where do I end up moving and like if we keep with this like is it 
is it realistic to only have local people help local people in your communities, knowing that displacement, gentrification is happening, um, our aspirations, like moving to different colleges um, for both undergrad and graduate school. And also, like, if you want to work in higher ed, like, the options are pretty limited if you stay locally in a place like where we grow up. You know, like, you grew up in Marin County. I did in Napa County. Um, and it's just, like, it's not realistic for people like us. And also, like, the conversations of and, and the realization for me, especially now that I, like, the scholars that I work with and students, they're in, they're in high school. Uh, most of them lived in the East Bay. So like it's predominantly black and Latino, Latinx. And so um, a lot of them and this conversation came up because we were going to a field trip to um, San Francisco and we we're taking public transportation. And one of the scholars like, came up to me and was like, have you taken BART before? And I was like, no, I've never taken BART before. And he was like, but didn't you grow up in the Bay Area? Like, you should have taken BART. And I'm like, yes, I grew up in the Bay Area, but like in the places where like in Napa, like public transportation, like BART does not go all the way up there, <laughs> one. And two, Sonoma State does not have, like did not have BART. Like now we have the smart train, but before we did not, like when I was a freshman, there was like none of that was happening. When I was, um, after my freshman year, I had to like commute. And before I bought a car that summer, like I was trying to look at for public transportation and there's none from like going from where I live to school that didn't require 10 hours of just one way there. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, for me, I was just like, first I had to like, kind of like, I was so like, kind of like angry where I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you don't understand, you know, like, but I'm like, this is a, first of all, it's a high school student. And two, they are, there's some privileges where we're coming from, like living in Napa, there's some privileges, but then also there's challenges. And we were discussing how it's like for us and, and understanding our privilege within our, within the spaces that we lived in, because they lived in, um, the scholars that I work with are living in Oakland and different parts from like the East Bay, um, where they have to take BART. You know, and so if I was a someone who didn't understand positionality, like I would have just been like a white woman, basically, like and just been like, well, you don't know my challenges and like that pushback. And I get that, like, it's really hard because we both had a discussion about what it's like to grow up in the way that we did. Um, But then not understand positionality and people having to validate that experience because living in predominantly extremely white spaces it comes with challenges in Mm -hmm. itself but it's also an opportunity for us to understand how um how to move up in some ways if we want to conform to another level you know like become extremely complacent to whiteness but when we are moved to spaces that are much more black and brown not understanding our anti-blackness not understanding how like anti-indigenous we uh, could express um, all these other things that like white supremacy is in us. And so for me, I'm like, we as like, speak, speaking for myself, like I as a white passing, like Latina who, Chicana, like who has grown up in such white spaces, like 
now I have to understand that these students should challenge me. Like you can't allow like saying like, yeah, you should respect me and not challenge all my whiteness or like how I come off as white uh, in different places. And um, like say in one hand, I'm like, yeah, I want you all to have autonomy and social justice and everything. But on the other hand, not allow them to challenge me as difficult as it is to have them challenge you because and like in any of the spaces that we've been we always just get challenged everywhere like at home it's like being challenged by like machismo and being a woman of color and all these other things and all these like different generational differences that we have with our family and then on like in academia has been like challenging like because of white people and men you know like and then we go into like with scholars and, and so and then we're being challenged because we're too white and we show whiteness but I'm like you have to be in such a good emotional um managing management like you have to really like manage your emotions and validate for yourself certain challenges that you have but then also like be open to that feedback that push from other mm-hmm. people who are challenging you on those things. So um, I was telling you, Ariana, how immensely challenging it is to have in that right space and having people not really understand other challenges that you may have that you just like are not visible to people and also be open to like regulate those emotions when people are pushing you and like really putting you on mm-hmm. the spot. Like, because his comment, like the scholar's comment of like me not taking BART and just like other comments of like, well, then you're just like not really the Bay Area. You don't like match this set of perception that I have of what a black or brown person is supposed to, you know, experience from low income, you know, like it's like low income, like how low income. And then like you like are going through oppression Olympics with mm-hmm. each other of like, well, I've suffered like I could have definitely responded in that way of like, well, you don't know what I've gone through. And how educators, like, we really need to have people, like, not only be, like, receptive to that challenges, but it's also for validate within ourselves and within people who have similar community, like, like, experiences to validate that to ourselves. Yeah, you Mm -hmm. have a challenge. Then also, like, how do you are open to, and how do you um, respond to when things like that happen and not project all this, like, white woman tears to them because that's not really what it, it's, and it's about. not productive it doesn't move the conversation along um and it's and it I think you have a, a greater learning experience by you know receiving the information processing and then you know having that realization you know that we have we've you know like for example you and the the scholar have grown up in different parts of the Bay Area and have different have had different upbringings and have had to rely on different modes of transportation for instance um and how that just then creates what you you know the perception that you have of other people right like what they should have known or should know by this time right and I think for me that was also like an interesting point that you made because I'm like yeah like uh I had to have a car (laughs) you know because you know the counties that we grew up in are so far away from the city you know you there's no public transportation we do have to have a car not because we want to but because that's like the only mode of moving you know of transportation that we have yeah and how I yeah and how I mentioned to you I'm like 
yeah, the challenge of obtaining a car in the circumstances that we grow up, we grew up was very mm-hmm. challenging, but it's also like, it, it doesn't also compare to the experience of having to take part, right. you know, like, and as a young kid or taking yourself, like that is a whole other set of like experiences that we also don't get like, yes, getting a car was challenging, but it's not a comparison to having to take public transportation, like how they do. Um, And so it's like pretty challenging because they go like everyone is challenging (laughs) us in certain ways, but it's also um, having to take that ownership of like, yes, we, we are, uh, we did grow up in white spaces and we do come across as white uh, in different spaces, depending on who we, who we have as audience. But, um, and that's the thing that I'm like, I hope that they challenge me, you know, like that is the thing that I like as much as I feel very uncomfortable in those times, because I'm like, like shit, you know, like I, I don't want to either have white guilt. I don't want to come across as a white woman you know, like all these other things, I'm like, I do want you to challenge me and give that opportunity for you to do that. And for me to learn from that experience, if I haven't like responded in the best mm-hmm. way, and also um, let them know that I also am not going to speak a different way, or act a different way that doesn't feel authentic. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, I'm not going to ethnicize myself. Because that's not really like, I'm, I just speak like this and there's that's it you know I can switch some words around um if it feels comfortable but I'm like not gonna change my whole self uh, either because that just feels that's not very Mm -hmm. genuine either um and but let them know that at the end of the day like my actions and my words I hope that you can see that I do care and that I'm down you know like if anything like I'm down and I I will be there to do the Mm -hmm. work that it takes for you to trust me um especially if it's like the power mm-hmm. dynamic is very different because this scholar was a black queer man you know and, and so understanding that and for me to not be like well as a woman you know as a cis woman you know like all these things like that's not the that that, that wasn't the issue and that's where I think for us who have like a much more higher power dynamic in that or privilege uh, we need to take a, a account of that and like that's it's not our place to like start like showing and shoving our own personal details because that's not what the student or any other individual needs in that moment like it's not for you to start bragging piling up on all the other ways that you're challenged like they're challenging on one specific Mm -hmm. thing you know chill (laughs) you know yeah yeah and that brings us to I want to say how people move because of economic hardships, right? Like how we've moved because, you know, schooling, for example, that's like we, that's the way that we've moved. But for example, our parents, like the reason they immigrated to this country was not, at least for mine, wasn't willingly. It was because they needed to in order to provide for their Mm -hmm. families. But generally before, like, I know that usually like people in my parents' home, like town or yeah, hometowns would grow, you know, live like, for example, my grandpa lived, was born in the house, lived in this house and died in the house that he, that his parents raised him in. 
So that was usually more traditional, right? That a way of living before that you like basically live and die in the same town that you're in. But for us now, like that our parents immigrated, um, there is that sense of like, well, when we're relocating, relocating, we find, we try to find that community within those towns or within the new places. Um, and so for example, like me living in Massachusetts right now, that's one of the first things that I did in order to feel like I, this is home. And something that I was sharing with you was that the more that I go back home to SF, like, you know, to Marin, um, the less, maybe because I don't have my stuff there, but the less connected I feel to those places. And it's just been like throughout the year, just this feeling of like, I'm a guest here now because my what I call home now is is you know Cambridge and Somerville and Massachusetts in general so like just having that realization that um that we're natural like almost like just we naturally immigrate to new places and that we will like then distort other people's realities we will you know our presence will then make other people question like why we're there yeah, and it, and we had a conversation about how like our own parents lived in an environment where everyone stayed in the same town. So like you live there and you die there. Like that was uh, like the practice. Like if anything, like at work, for work you would move somewhere, but for the most part, like you would still have some sort of connection with the town that you either grew up or lived in um and how now like being older and being like close to my mid-20s like it's interesting to see even from my own like high school class or the people that I went to school with how um a lot of them have still stayed there Mm -hmm. and I just like Napa for real is a bubble and everyone who has moved out of Napa says the same thing is that it is a bubble and that once you move into different places, you end up seeing so many, like you gain so much insight of how the world is not the way that Napa is. And the world is much bigger than that. And there's other issues that happen because now that I live now in Berkeley and Oakland, like it's a whole different Bay area experience Mm -hmm. and it's a whole different, um, just like environment. You learn so many different things. And that, um, in general, like when I when I went to like the Central Valley, like in Fresno, like I saw way more people with like saying like you know like only us could be there, which is interesting because like where I work, like I have my boss who has been there and grew up there. Um, she lived before, like in in LA, and I'm like we help each other push the needle. Mm-hmm. You know, like where I have different ideas of what I've experienced, you know, advising students to look like Mm -hmm. and tools that I gained from like having been either worked or gone to school in different institutions. That brings a a different set of value where she can guide me where how things have been, where the resources, where the people that we can trust. Right. So it's like this connection where it doesn't have to be one extreme or the other. And knowing how globalization has impacted everything um i don't know how realistic it will be where people are especially for low-income communities and 
minoritized people like I don't feel like we're gonna end up staying in the same spaces Mm -hmm. just because of how much I've even seen like gentrification happening in Fresno and like the push of like all these like like all these wealthy people and the beautification of places like happening and reconstruction I mean the fires in general like in the Bay Area have like really displaced so many like people already yeah no I mean all of that and I think within that there's a a beauty that comes with it Um, one of the benefits is that we're adaptable Um, we're multicultural Uh, we learn to mold ourselves based on the environment that we're in and at the same time like um, bring our in, our own persona and bring our own experiences to share to those who maybe didn't leave those places that we're in. Yeah, because there's like just a sense of like comfort. Because mm-hmm. I've I've like grew up like with my parents saying like pueblo chico, infierno grande. Like that is something that like people like. I just don't like being in a small town. Like I would not want to be in a town where everyone knows each other. Because that just, like, is weird to me that they're all over my business. And just growing <laughs> up with, like, a Latinx family that everyone knows where you are. You have no sense of privacy. You have no sense of, like, your own individual self being something completely different from your family. Mm-hmm. Like, you are, like, you carry your last name and this whole, especially for us mujeres, like, like our whole family dignity, legacy, and all that stuff is tied to our virginity and our holiness and how much we practice religion Mm -hmm. and being a good woman and a good wife like it's just for me it's like that's not what I want and so it's just like interesting like even when you move out in different places like your latinidad or your latin latina self is always questioned Mm -hmm. like in terms of these cultural practices and like having a fine tune and be like I am myself with all the acknowledging even like the whiteness within us Mm -hmm. of what is happening and understanding like the position that whiteness plays in both our lives and both like being Mexican and being um, living and growing up in the US Mm -hmm. and understanding now as educators okay you know like whiteness has made us survived to a certain point but now we have to reject and reframe, rethink how as educators are we going to really face and hold accountable to the benefits that we gained and how we are perpetuating so many other things too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and with that, I, I mean, I even when I go home, when I went home uh, recently and seeing some of my cousins who, you know, I I, one I hadn't seen them in a while (laughs) but just saying hi how are you and it's like very brief interactions because like I feel like I no longer have something in common to share with them or something that I can talk about that they can understand that I can you know there's always like that like oh how's your family how's your kid how's you know how's work and then it ends because like I've you know I've outgrown the, the conversations or I have like another experience so all he's like so have you you know like for me, it was like, so you're planning to stay out there? Like, you know, it's very, very superficial conversations that I have. Um, and it's just interesting how, like, even within our families, yes, we're both Mexican or we're all, you know, my family. 
Um, but our experience is because of my, our different journeys. You know, he's a like a dad. He's a family man. Like he's he's done that, you know, alternative life that I haven't done yet. So it's it's a little bit different. And that's where I feel like I myself feel as an outsider coming into a space where I'm with family. Um, so it's just like like it becomes apparent. Basically, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and, like, feeling a sense of, like, both of us, we even started, like, I started even, like, thinking, yo, I I don't think I'm a local to anything. (laughs) Like, I don't Mm -hmm. have, like, lived in a place long enough, worked in a place long enough to feel like I know everyone or, I don't know, a sense of, like, connection or you've placed a lot of roots in a different or a specific place. And that constant, like, feeling of being an outsider mm-hmm. and, like, the the toll that it takes on you, like, because you have to adapt so quick, like, so much, so many times. Mm-hmm. Like, personally, for me, I went to so many different schools and switched so much. Like, I, like, especially in high school, like, I didn't go to the school, like, from the people that I, were in middle school, I went to the opposite, you know, high school that normally people don't go mm-hmm. to. And just consistently having to do new, like, introductions and new things. In one hand, it sucks because you really don't know the same people. But in a good, on the, on the other hand, you have a great advantage because you can start fresh. Mm-hmm. And people don't really know who you are. Um, if you want to change different habits, you can. Uh, you can build a different identity in some ways where... Um, people you know like don't bully you for a specific thing and like you're like set the marca like from here mm-hmm. until end, like you die you know like that one little mistake mm-hmm. carries mm-hmm. over um and so it's it's like a whole like feeling unseen and unvalidated it's like a system it's like a byproduct of all these things that we later on because we are not included and all that stuff like this is why like a lot of a lot of us end up, you know, feeling like and and enabling all this whiteness to continue. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Which makes sense, but I'm like, we need to do better. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I like what you said about like, if we're in these spaces, how can we bring in like ourselves? How can we make the changes that we want to see so that other people don't have to feel this way or feel the uncomfortness or like the uncomfortness of having to like up, uproot and reroot and like don't feel like and you know like you're not welcome and you know like go through this whole the, all these processes that we have to go through every time yeah and and that's the thing where I've learned like in this job mm-hmm. uh, because we do um, so this is something that I like wanted to talk about too like how in smash there like the residential like director is the one who has facilitated this like accountabilities and ownerships mm-hmm. so this is something where i think even in any workspace could definitely be implemented where it's a space where it's not necessarily where you get written up or things like that it's a it's a place to be genuine and being honest mm-hmm. like doing a restorative practice of being able to have space to be accountable like, so the first thing is you taking ownership. So um, we had like a conflict within our, our group and our team. And he provided a space where all of us could own up 
to something that we didn't do, something that we said, um, misunderstanding or things like that. And so you go around in a circle and every single person acknowledges and takes ownership of something. Mm -hmm. And then the next one is like the feedback circle, which is like the um, accountabilities where I'm like, so what's next? So, okay, now you like you earn, like you own it and you are, have to be vulnerable and definitely honest of like the things that you don't do because the easiest thing that we do, which is like the survival mode. And this is where I've learned, like, this is where conflict resolution doesn't work mm-hmm. is that we point at the details, but we never validate and acknowledge how that person feels. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually use a lot of I statements and the power of I statements, mm-hmm. because like once that person says um here's how this incident happened and this is the details or whatever and I felt this way and and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and and just like learning how to apologize and acknowledge because I'm like we can't get stuck on the details in some certain instances like you can just like mention here's how I felt and you can never like really invalidate Mm -hmm. that person how they felt because that's how they perceived it and so you acknowledge that you're like, I am, I am sorry that I made you feel this way. And I want to like make it up or things like that. Um, it is a lot harder with, uh, in terms of, because we had like an instance where like, um, in my behavior, like the way that I responded, uh, one of the black, um, uh, uh, RAs was like, Hey, like I, Patricia, I didn't like, like the fact that you answered because um we were talking like in the group chat someone said like one of the latinos was saying like oh what's june juneteenth and so i had already an article opened up about like from like what is it called um uh what is it called uh the teen teen vogue that's what it was (laughs) was teen vogue who had like a whole article written on it and i just like thought i was like oh i just had opened it let me just share it and so um, she called me out and she's like that, like you responding directly without even letting me as a black woman respond. Um, that's like a s- slight anti-black, you know, move that I perceive. And I could have been all white woman and been like, well, let me give you a whole backstory of the details of like why I did this and like all these things, which in, in turn makes the other person feel guilty mm-hmm. because then they feel that they overreacted. So you're not really addressing the action of how that person felt. You're just giving them extra details on like why you did that. As, and then it deviates from like actually addressing the way that that person felt. Mm-hmm. And so the way that you forgive would be just saying, I'm sorry, like I won't do that again. And that's it. You don't have to give any explanation or things like that. Because also like thinking about power dynamics, her as a white woman, I mean, her as a black woman, like is... Um, and I, as a like white as a Latina, like I have more privilege in the positionality of power, mm-hmm. right? And so, like for me, being as a brown woman, like trying to explain, like what, like that didn't have a space in it. I could have explained that to a friend of mine mm-hmm. who is like either in the similar situation, like a similar positionality of mine or not, and discuss like, oh my gosh, like this is how I like here's my guilt or here's all these other things, but like the person who I affect don't need, doesn't need to hear that. Mm -hmm. And it's like the taxing thing that we do to have like black and brown folks, especially when it comes like with white people, that instances, right. 
where the white person ends up like feeling super offended and then there's no space for you to even acknowledge the action not so much the Mm -hmm. details Mm -hmm. no that's yeah very very interesting and like I like that example that you provided Um, and I think that's a model that should be replicated in other spaces for like trainings or in workplaces I think it's definitely um, a healthy way to maneuver with conflict and that it's effective I mean you can actually discuss like what's going on at the root of the situation and not just like oh I'm taking it personally because you're attacking me right yeah and it's an ownership and an accountability and a space to talk about how you made that person feel without it going like a super long and attacking that Mm -hmm. person because personally for me like being in so many white spaces like you learn to be petty like how many of us like have shared like all these like memes or like wanting to be petty with emails and all these different things to white people but in the end like it when we later on are in spaces with black and brown people then we're trying to be petty with each other and doing the same thing where we don't even lead to the root cause of the issue and also like talk about the actions that we do that are not healthy ways of communicating that in the end we like are triangulating and talking to the other person without really addressing to the person but I'm like but also like taking into account that there's power dynamics within even like that stuff because in some cases we can't go straight to that person Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it's really not going to lead anywhere Mm -hmm. so it's um a pretty tricky like fine line with those kind of instances but I think it's going to be much more conducive to better conversations if we were all really genuine and willing to forgive and take ownership Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I think forgiveness um as we go into our next next topic that's tied to to what you're you've been saying right now um is about forgiveness and that is something that it's not even modeled in our families at least that we've seen that we've experienced ourselves um, I don't think we ever really talk about that uh, in a productive, in a healthy, in a way. I think oftentimes we tend to, the incident happens, we're upset with each other, and then we just like do our own things. We, you know, we were like mad at each other, avoiding each other, and then we come back like maybe hours later or the next day and we're like, oh, like, como si nada, like as if nothing happened. Um, and some of us are maybe may be holding grudges longer maybe some of us may not be in that space but eventually we we come back and we we're fine right but are we really fine is the question Uh, did we really address the problem no and so then this like continues on and building up maybe uh later on where we may have another incident and then you know the previous incident was never resolved so then this one is like a lot harsher a lot more um intense um because it was never resolved and so i think that's something that as as latin latinx families we do is that we tend to not we tend to not know how to forgive or how to bring up that conversation like you know what i was in the wrong or asking checking in with each other about like how did you know if something's wrong let me know or you know a product in a productive way where we don't get defensive yeah, and and just, like, growing up, having, like, 
a sense where the parents don't forgive Mm -hmm. like that is especially if they're they don't give forgiveness to their children like that is definitely not like a thing like I've never heard seen nothing my dad ever asked for Mm -hmm. forgiveness or apologized for something that he clearly had like done and so like that has like definitely made me really reevaluate of like how in academic spaces too like those power dynamics of like it's top down it's very hierarchical and like thinking about when have you seen a leader take ownership and accountability Mm -hmm. and apologize in Mm -hmm. public like really apologize and learning how to apologize because again how I'm saying like the apology letters that a bunch of people like put in public like they describe all the scenarios of like in ways where justifying reasons why they did Mm -hmm. that but they never really say I'm sorry and here's how I'm going to work to change and fix clean up the mess that Mm -hmm. I made and also give some reparations to those people or ask for like how in what way as you the affected people or a group of people or person would you like me to like you know fix it like there's no those conversations right yeah. Yeah. And I was just thinking of a recent incident um, that I experienced where I was uh, basically at bringing up the situation that occurred and I, all I wanted was an acknowledgement. All I wanted was like, I was in the wrong. And, and in that whole conversation that I had with this person, never did that person say, I'm sorry for how I made you feel. Never, there was no apology. There was just a statement of like, I've taken the, the steps um, to resolve this. Like, according to that person, they've taken those steps. And I'm like, are you sure? Because one, you never addressed it with me. You know, and if, I, if you've really taken the steps to, to redeem yourself or whatever, shouldn't I be a part of that conversation? Shouldn't you check in with me? Because not only am I your friend, but you know, we've been in different spaces together. Like, don't you, aren't you like for me, not having that conversation with me is saying, I don't care about the relationship, you know? And then these are the things that happen when we don't talk about it or when we brush it under the rug or pretend that it didn't happen or like, Oh, it happened. And like moving on. Yeah. Or like my parents, like I, there's so many times where it's like, there's been a fight, there's been a, you know, something that we're not okay with or the way that we address it was like or some person you know hurt the other person and it's just like my mom has like the habit more her than anything is like to just aplacarlos mm-hmm. at todos and then the next day act like nothing had happened and I'm just like I personally cannot go and do that because I'm like I'm still affected and now I am not even being like seen as like your issue even matters because like you just are making it up in your head. Like this is how they like gaslight you like from day one. (laughs) Like, and on top of that, like there's the fact that you have to deal with your own emotions and your own separate way and still connect with that person who had like been abusive or has, you know, disrupted like, or, you know, you don't trust anymore and do that. Like that is just like things that I'm like, all these behaviors that are in the survival mode part that we still as a community and as generations have not addressed and not 
you know, taking into like thriving mm-hmm. mode of like healing. Mm-hmm. And that's the part where like the restorative piece of restorative justice comes in where, you know, the people, no matter your position, have to put in a vulnerable space. Like you have to be very vulnerable and, you know, really watch the ego and know that you're going to mess up a couple of times. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that you, because of your position, because of your age, because of all these other things, it doesn't mean that you can't mess up. It's like, but how are you going to respond to that feedback? when you have messed up Mm -hmm. right and not let the other person like invalidate their experiences so it's been pretty hard because I had an instance where like someone had like told me like went off and just wanted to fight with me and I'm like it's so hard because you're just like I really want to be petty but I can't move to that space anymore like it's not conducive to anything and at the end we're just like unresolved issues and so when you set those boundaries up with everyone around you and you have to like be the bigger person it's so hard because they're going to want to drag you into their toxic behavior and drag you into their toxic way of dealing with things right mm-hmm. yeah for sure um and we and, and being aware i think is one of the major steps here is like remembering not to respond in the same way that you've been conditioned to respond or like that you've seen people respond and it's using being the bigger person in those spaces for sure and acknowledging how hard that even is in the first place Mm -hmm. like not only are we you know oppressed in so many different ways but it's like access to this like mental health and access to this restorative like justice knowledge and how do you do this like it It's like so exclusive Mm -hmm. that this is why we have a hard time in our communities, like being able to practice it because we get tested everywhere around Mm -hmm. that. It's like we have to have a sense of control and agency over someone Mm -hmm. else, over a group of other Mm -hmm. people, you know, to feel somewhat powerful. Mm -hmm. And just in general, like the, the stuff that I've learned so far, like even access to therapy, Um, access to information all these things are just so hard to practice when like everything around us like is constantly pushing us to respond in very unhealthy ways Mm -hmm. and divide like the whole intergroup conflict like people instead of wanting to address the situation they want to avoid the group of people like how many people who have come forward about the whole me too movement now just like think women are a liability And that let's not hire them because, you know, that's the way to solve Mm -hmm. things, right? As opposed to discuss how hypertoxic masculinity have come up and patriarchy work. Because that would be, for me, it would be so much easier because then you actually get to the root cause of the problem. But then again, for some people, it's the hardest because that means you're no longer accepting their form of abuse, their form of, you know, having specific special privileges Mm -hmm. and just in general like at work you know like there's so many men that just do not have ever envisioned ever a world where people like they can no longer be like they can no longer do hyper toxic masculinity things like that's not a space where we want them anymore and they just get so like they're so surprised that that's the thing. And 
one of them is specifically like they like grew up in some machista and like you know men don't cry kind of environment which is so funny for me because I'm like yo like we grew up in that too the difference mm-hmm. is that we're like mujeres so like our standards were very different but we still have a we still lived in that environment and that still doesn't justify your actions mm-hmm. and it's pretty hard because then you're seen as like you know the bad person yeah yeah and it definitely does uh, <clears throat> does show up in in workspaces and i and, you know we can have this continue this conversation um in future episodes and continue to uh dig deeper but something that i'd like to um that i'd like for you to announce patricia i don't know if you um can do this now but um basically mm-hmm. give some updates on our on our podcast uh, one of them is the fact that we didn't, you know, how we mentioned in our last episode that we had applied for some Google, um, uh, what was it, grant or something? Google Podcast Creators something app. Yes. Some additional support. About them <laughs> it's been a while. Uh, basically, we didn't get it, and that's okay. Um, we are continuing to thrive and push forward and, um, and that's where Patricia comes in with a new, um, what is it like? <laughs> it's like, it's just a, a way for people to support us. Yeah. So, um, although the $40,000 would have been great, um, it's not surprising that Google didn't choose us, uh, or as one of the six, um, podcasts, but can't expect corporations to pay for us in this especially in our topics um and so what we wanted to do was create like a patreon account so what patreon is is for um any individual to like contribute to our it's kind of like a um you collect basically like a subscription of people um to pay a specific amount each month or just one-time contribution like people can cancel anytime and that's where a lot of creatives like for example like us as podcasters can um, put in like content like any creative content or information access to any materials that we create or things like that uh, depending on your monthly subscription so um, we have so they call them four tiers so that means like different subscription levels and so the first one we called it is the code switchers which is one dollar per month so we made the option for people to get charged on the day that they subscribe Um, and you would be charged like for example if you did the the first tier it would be one dollar and you basically get a shout out in our podcast episodes Um, and then secure the bag that's three dollars and that's for us to pay for um People, we're going to put, like, information about how to get money for uh, undergrad or graduate school. Like, we're going to put a list of scholarships, um, any tips that we have, Excel sheets. Uh, I already put up one um, checklist. So, if you're thinking about doing graduate school applications, uh, we already have a checklist put in there. The first month, I put for the subscribers to get access to. And then after that, we can also give content for free for other people. So, that checklist will be up. Is already up and then after a month like next month um 
it'll be accessible to everyone. So we do like are conscious that not everyone can afford or pay something, but it does give you an opportunity to pay. And then for other things like pay, like the researcher uh, tier is $10. And that one, it, we put articles, there's already one up. Um, and then the social scholar is $15 a month. And that gives an opportunity for people to actually have a video chat with us. So, nice. um, and we get an hour we can socialize, we can talk about any specific topic or anything that you all want to have a discussion with or, you know, platicas, share resources. And um, uh, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, so this is like our way of like, we've, we've talked about this in different episodes where we do like emotional labor, provide resources, information, but as POCs, we often don't get um, paid for this this labor right and so this is just a small way to um, compensate you know the time and the energy and our work for providing these resources and being cognizant that not everyone can afford it so obviously we want to make it accessible but it's just a small way of continuing to be able to provide the, this information um, not only for through the podcast but to make it available for a, a wide variety of people throughout the country and and provide them the tips that have helped us you know get to where we are now and and supporting each other in this way um it's just as a small exchange yeah Yeah, and also every content each month we will post and so we're going to um basically dedicate each first day of the month to post a bunch of things and resources and like things tips access depending on the tier that you are in you'll be you'll access everything Mm -hmm. so the higher up you have the tier um you'll be able to um access all the other like everything else so um the code switchers um we do have one patreon uh contributor um so thank you to dr larisa mercado lopez for being our uh, sponsor for this episode yes 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 many thank yous um and yeah so as we conclude this episode thank you patricia for joining us for you know joining me today um we're really excited to be back and to be starting up the second season of chicana code switchers um where we we have a lineup of people that we have in mind that we will be bringing to our future uh, episodes so, yeah, we have a couple of people um, around. They're all going to be different. It's both Ariana and I's, like, connections. So it's pretty exciting. So definitely, like, I'm excited for the people that are up and coming. And we will start revealing who the guests are, like, as we um, publish them. So we don't have a set recording or publishing, like, schedule just yet, just because everyone's still in the summer mode. <laughs> But uh, once we figure out our schedule, because Ariana and I, are, we both are going to be juggling around different things, but uh, we'll definitely keep posting. It just may not be every other week. Yeah. For now. We're taking a the summer vacay mode right now. Um, but yes, yeah, so thank you everyone for listening today. Uh, it's been great to be back. Uh, for all our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business, conference, and event shout-outs and listener letters. We do read them. Um, you could also record a listener message on Anchor app, and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. 
please follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and or on Twitter at X Code Switchers. And if you want to support our podcast, we do have a Venmo. It's at Chicana uh, Code Switchers. So please, again, thank you so much for tuning in today. And look for, I look forward to our next episode. And I hope you have okay. a great summer. Thank you all. See Bye. You Bye.